Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Communication Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Birma. If you watch old movies or study film history, you may know that early 20th century Hollywood operated under the Motion Picture Production Code, which dictated what could and couldn't be portrayed on screen. But did you know that television had a code of its own? Its story has never been told at length, until now. Deborah Jaramillo, professor of film and television at Boston University, is the author of a new book out last month from University of Texas Press called The Television Code, Regulating the Screen to Safeguard the Industry. Jaramillo tells the story of a young television industry's attempt to police itself on controversial questions about content, fending off pressure from government regulators and finicky viewers. Jaramillo explores whether the federal government could have played a stronger role at this formative time in broadcast television and what the code did and didn't accomplish in its three decades of existence. I'm joined by Deborah Jaramillo, author of The Television Code. Deborah, congratulations on the new book. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. You said that you found a couple of dissertation-type treatments of The Television Code, but this is the first published book on it. What drew you to this topic, and why do you think there wasn't more attention paid to the television code in the past? Um, I think what drew me to it was simply that it had had been ignored um, and uh, just sort of taken as a given. Um, So you'd read a line about it here or there in a a television history or broadcast history book, um, but no one really delved into it as though it were just kind of the most natural thing in the world that, you know, well, Hollywood had one, so surely television was going to have one as well. Um, And as I tried to go digging into it, you know, I found these older works um, from the 60s and whatnot, but no kind of contemporary evaluation trying to put the pieces together. So I figured that was a gap that I was happy to fill. And we'll talk about some of the limitations of the code itself, but I wonder if because there were more highly publicized confrontations or controversies surrounding the Hollywood code, if it's been more studied, do you think that's possible? Um, possibly, you know, some of the same players were involved in television as well. Uh, religious groups, right? Catholic organizations, um, you know, people did mobilize around issues they felt to be, or material they felt to be offensive on television. Obviously parents groups, uh, were concerned about children, educational groups as well. Um, so, you know, there was still controversy. I, I think the Hollywood code is potentially a little bit sexier, maybe because... Maybe literally. <laughs> exactly. Uh, films were pushing the envelope much more than television was. Um, but also, you know, you have the, and I'll just put it this way, the kind of boring element of the government involved in the television code story. Uh, whereas with Hollywood, you didn't have that, right? You had this care, well, not a charismatic figure so much, but you have Will Hayes, who uh, was sort of this upstanding stooge of a guy. You had Joseph Green, you know, you had these, these figures that, um, that could be studied, I think, in really interesting ways. They had very particular personalities. But on the television side, especially with regard to 
the National Association of Broadcasters and later the National Association of Radio and Television Broadcasters, you have groups of people who prefer to stay behind the scenes, right? Uh, they're not... Um, they're not putting themselves out there like Will Hayes was putting himself out there. So everything just seemed kind of hidden. Um, and it was interesting to kind of tease out that story. So the code itself you describe as a, quote, fascinating yet dull document. Why is it both of those things? Um, it's fascinating because, or to me at least, the idea of standardizing content just seems so contrary to the creative process. So the idea that they would try to set boundaries around what could be on television, uh, to me was quite fascinating. And, you know, as I say in the book, um, you know, it, it was very similar actually to what was being policed in motion pictures. Um, so there's not much in the, in the code that's terribly surprising, um, but, uh, but it's fascinating nonetheless, just because they were trying to police content in the way they were. It's dull because it's a trade association document, you know, it's, um, it's being, it's very dry in laying out, you know, what you can and can't do. Um, but you know, half of the document is also dealing with, um, you know, standards for advertisers as well. So it's a very business-driven, business-oriented document. Again, it lacks all sexiness <laughs> and intrigue. But again, that central conceit that, you know, it was trying to uh, rein in what we like to see as a very creative process, which is the process of making television, um, sets it apart and, and makes it worthy of study. So you start by looking at the precedent set in the radio era, particularly around the 1934 Communications Act, which created the FCC um, and gave it a role defined or somewhat undefined in, in how to regulate or oversee broadcasting. Uh, both radio's affiliate structure, in which there were stations all over that were affiliated with central networks, and radio's attempt to police itself by writing its own code, both of those seem to set a precedent for television. How inevitable or irreversible was that course that once radio did that, television would follow suit? Yeah, I mean, this is something that I try to tackle in the book by first talking about the Television Broadcasters Association, which, which was TV's first trade association. This was an association they called themselves, you know, by TV and for TV, um, even though radio interests were in, um, were members of this association, the association was really geared toward organizing and figuring out how television was going to launch after World War II. And so in their discussions um, during the time period when kind of television manufacturing had stalled uh, because of the war effort, you know, there, there was some real reluctance on their part to replicate decisions that had been made uh, to regulate radio and to kind of structure radio and govern it. And so you had, you know, people looking ahead to television saying, look, TV needs to have an experimental phase. We need to allow television to find out what it is to experiment with content and to not fold under the pressure of, you know, what they would refer to as maybe prudish types of people uh, who didn't want television to move in, uh, in directions different from, you know, the way that radio had gone. So, you know, there's this sense that TV could be what radio was not allowed to be, at least national network radio. Obviously, local radio 
supremely diverse. But if we're talking about national television, uh, we're talking about something that's going to fit into a mold. Um, and uh, basically, you know, the folks involved in, in getting television off the ground and really thinking through and sort of philosophizing about television before it really launched in a, in a, in a mainstream way, you know, didn't want to see television is, you know, going down some sort of inevitable path. Now, if we back away from that and um, understand that the same structures moving television forward, the same institutions were those same institutions that got national network radio off the ground, uh, then there is a sense of inevitability about it, right? Um, When the National Association of Broadcasters rests television away from the Television Broadcasters Association, uh, then there's even a greater sense of inevitability about it. And in this time period when the Television Broadcasters Association is trying to set out on its own, television is still seen as sort of the little brother of radio. Radio is the dominant force. Was there any sense that television would come to be the dominant force that it later was in American life at that time? There was great anticipation for that. There was a sense of understanding among manufacturers, broadcasters, advertisers, that even though the road might be a little bumpy, um, this medium was poised to really take off after World War II. And so they were all ready. And again, you know, manufacturing uh, was stalled during World War II, um, but the planning continued, um, as I write about. So... um, Everything was in place for television to take off in the way that it did. And obviously in the early days, you know, um, sponsors had to be enticed to come on board uh, into the television enterprise. But once they did and they found a, a very lucrative home, then it was just a matter of time before television took off. In the space of 10 years, what from 48 to 58 um, television wound up being in, in just over 80 percent of homes in the U.S., so it was um, it was a quick ride um, upward to that um, to that degree of penetration. And like I said, it was a very calculated, very highly planned release. Everything was in place to make sure that television would be a success. Let's go back for a minute to 1934 and the Communications Act. Uh, what was the FCC created to do? What did the Act say that it couldn't do, and what didn't it say that might have? provided helpful clarification later on about the FCC's role? Yeah, so the FCC uh, basically was the modernization of the Federal Radio Commission, right? Federal Radio Commission uh, created in 1927, a very poorly uh, funded regulatory agency. Um, Once we get to 34 and kind of new potentials, uh, the new potential of technology um, has kind of revealed itself in the form of television, um, then we have this kind of revamped um, agency with a mandate very similar to that of the FRC. Essentially, the FCC, the, the big power that the FCC has um, with regard to broadcasting, both radio and television, uh, is the power to license, right? They're the gatekeeper. You have to get the license to broadcast um, if you want to do it legally. And so they're, um, they're controlling who enters uh, they're controlling uh, channel allocations or controlling how much power uh, broadcasters have in terms of their signal and, and in terms of the reach. Um, and they also don't have the power to control content. All right. Uh, they are government, um, you know, the regulatory agencies not in the constitutional design 
uh, yet they're there acting as kind of an intermediary between the consumer uh, and the industry and the government. Uh, they occupy this very, very strange space, but we have to understand that they're still uh, a part of the government. So the FCC cannot censor. It's not allowed to censor. It's not allowed to control content in any way. Yet what scholars argue is that because it has that fundamental power over who gets to broadcast, um, they're automatically um, assigning value to particular content, right? Uh, they're automatically um, steering the direction that content is going to go in if they say to one group, okay, yes, you can broadcast, and they say to another group, no, you can't broadcast. Um, so this creates some really sticky situations because the FCC um, is – you know, it requires broadcasters to operate in the public interest. All right. So this is the big term that's uh, never, ever defined. It's interpreted differently by everyone. Um, and so each FCC, each commission has had a very particular idea about what the public interest actually is. So if, you know, in uh, the late 1940s, the FCC is saying, well, educational programming is in the public interest. Religious programming is in the public interest. Um, you know, uh, programs without sponsors, that's in the public interest. If they're saying, look, these things need to be in your lineup, well, they're actually guiding content in that way. And so the broadcasters are obviously, uh, you know, not happy with the government not telling them necessarily what programs to air, but what types of programs to air. So that created conflicts uh, between the government and the industry. And as I talk about in the book, the role of the FCC throughout all of this, throughout time, uh, is such a point of contention. So, um, so many people argue about what powers the FCC actually has, to what extent they, um, they transgress their own boundaries, uh, and to what extent they should have more power, actually. You give a lot of attention to the trade industry saying that what it's worried about first and foremost is censorship. But you suggest that there may have been some ulterior motives. So here's a quote that I want to ask you about. You say, quote, ultimately, the crafting of the television code was evidence of panic, not panic about censorship as the NARTB, the trade industry, would have would have had everyone believe, but panic about a decentering of the commercial television model. What do you mean? There were what the National Association of Broadcasters would have perceived as threats at the time, uh, which were coming from uh, not only... Uh, you know, potential educational broadcasters, uh, but also from different models, all right, uh, of, of kind of different ways to do TV, which would have been a subscription television, all right. So um, in the book, I talk about uh, Senator William Benton, who used to be a radio ad man uh, and wound up becoming a sort of radio and television reformer. Um, he wanted to see more educational broadcasting. Uh, he also wanted to see subscription television uh, as a viable model, a viable alternative to, to commercial television so that people could pay uh, to get what they wanted um, because he felt that broadcasting wasn't serving what he called minority tastes. All right. So what we think of right now is cable kind of serving niche audiences because the broad, you know, uh, the broadcast networks only go for the mass. Uh, William Benton was thinking about, um, 
uh, very early on in the late 1940s and 1950s. And, you know, the, the NAB broadcasters in general had been uh, fighting against alternatives for a while. So pay TV, for example, was being experimented with in the 1930s. And the reason the FCC was involved in all of this is because the FCC ultimately, one, had to determine uh, if they had the jurisdiction to regulate and to police somehow these emerging technologies that would compete with broadcasting. And in every instance, yes, they actually did come to the the conclusion that they did have jurisdiction. But as the FCC was encouraging these other technologies to develop, they also felt that they needed to look out for the broadcasters as well. So they wanted to, you know, uh, make sure that this, that the commercial model was stable. Well, obviously the commercial broadcasters wanted to make sure that there was no viable competition um, that they had to worry about. And so if they could clean up their act, if they could, make everyone believe that television was safe um, and that kids could watch it and there wouldn't be a lot of violence, a lot of sex, um, there wouldn't be any low necklines, uh, then no one would look for alternatives to that particular model, right? Commercial TV could be natural. It could be dominant. uh, It could solve every problem for you. uh, It would cater to, um, you know, the, the tastes of the whole and no one would need to go looking for, um, you know, any kind of service uh, to cater to anything else. So you describe the television code as sort of a preemptive defensive move by the industry. And so, again, the idea is if we can placate the government or placate criticisms that the government is worried about, then no one will disrupt our model. Right, exactly. So the trade industry had its interests, its very direct interests, uh, but they ended up playing sort of a moral role in which they are self-policing moral guidelines um, of what can be broadcast and what can't. Did they see themselves as being sort of moral gatekeepers? Did they want to be that? Were they sort of forced to be that? I think if they really wanted to be, they would have crafted, um, you know, a policy. They would have crafted a document uh, that was wholly original and unique. Instead, you know, they're pulling from, uh, you know, somewhat from the radio codes, all of which sort of failed. They're pulling from NBC's own policies. They're pulling from the production code as well. Basically, they're, um, you know, cutting and pasting um, to kind of satisfy as many of the critics as possible. Um, you know, this, this, I mean, the code was crafted pretty quickly, uh, and it was sort of adopted pretty quickly. So it, you know, this was, um, this is, was, this was a ritual basically. Right. And so I talk about the radio codes, the multiple radio codes is just being this ritual of self-regulation, uh, in place to satisfy, um, you know, criticisms that are coming at them in sort of piecemeal fashion, um, and so in order to sort of, you know, nip the problem in the bud before it becomes even bigger, they just go down that same road, right? They perform that ritual again uh, by piecing together whatever moralistic things they can find. But what's interesting, though, is that the distinction that I draw between the production code and the television code in terms of their content is that the production code actually refers to God 
uh, and morality in many ways. And the television code uh, defers to commerce, actually, as that um, as that thing that makes TV wholesome and that makes TV American and democratic. Now, lurking in the background, you don't suggest a direct connection necessarily is anti-communist fervor. This is right before McCarthyism rises in the late 40s, early 50s, when the code is being enacted. What role did that play? Because after all, questions about government overreach or government being heavy-handed suggest directly or indirectly links to um, a very powerful Soviet government that the U.S. wanted to distinguish itself from. What role did that play in this in this equation? Absolutely. So um, in there, there's this great uh, sort of short film that the National Association of Broadcasters produced uh, that I encourage everyone to go track down online. It's called A Welcome Guest in the Home. Um, and it follows this young boy um, who's supposed to stand in for kind of every child uh, in the U.S. And it, it follows him and his sort of uh, journey of discovery as he watches as he watches television and the short film describes the responsibility of broadcasters. Um, and, uh, it conflates that responsibility with, um, you know, uh, a democratic commitment, um, and with commerce as well. So this commercial medium can help fulfill our promise as a democratic nation. Um, and so that is it very much in line with the type of rhetoric um, coming from the National Association of Broadcasters well before the television code. Uh, Justin Miller, who was the president of the NAB during the time period that I'm writing about, um, you know, gave a series of speeches in which he's anticipating uh, a government crackdown on content, not just for radio, but for, uh, for, you know, what's to come on television. And he, you know, consistently equates this sort of um, FCC uh, oversight with totalitarianism um, in direct opposition to what the broadcasters are doing, which is commercial, it's contributing to the economy, it is therefore democratic and American, all right? And so um, you're absolutely right, at the base of all of this um, is this is this is is the red scare? Is the fear of communism? Is the fear of totalitarianism? Um, uh, the fear of a government takeover of ideas, right? And so, it's it's made quite humorous when you think about how really weak the FCC was in terms, not only in terms of its funding, but in terms of its ability to actually affect change in the public interest, because each time the FCC would try to do something to say, hey, look, what about the public interest mandate? Why don't you work towards more educational programming, for example? They would be slapped down by the broadcasters uh, who would say, no, you're being, (laughs) you know, you're being totalitarian, you're infringing on our First Amendment rights. So, uh, you know, NAB, the NAB and Justin Miller were kind of setting up this idea of uh, of a monster lurking in the FCC that was that was going to completely stifle all progress that radio and television were making um, as uh, not only as creators of of content but as uh, as engines for the economy. Actually. 
So you have a fascinating treatment of viewer concerns and complaints that they wrote in, in most cases, to the government with. And some of these, I think, have never seen the light of day before your research found them. One theme that comes across is that viewers see their home as an inner sanctum and television is invading it. And it sounds obvious once you say it, but to just think about the distinction that if you're going to see a movie that Hollywood has produced, you're making a decision to leave your home, go to another place, and voluntarily enter that space. Whereas television is in your living room, your child might turn it on, and that's potentially seen as much more invasive. What, do you th- what role do you think that distinction played, particularly in viewers' concerns about the role in the place of television in their home? Well, yeah, I mean, this uh, this invasiveness really hit home for a lot of people. And what I found in these letters of complaint that they wrote um, to the FCC and sometimes even to the president uh, was that, you know, their home was being invaded, um, you know, by uh, someone who they by, by something they can't control. Um, and, you know, these viewers, uh, mostly women, would take this very, very personally. Um, you know, they felt that they had control over the homes, but once this box entered, once the signals entered their home, um, you know, they were constantly, uh, in a battle against values they perceived to be, you know, foreign to them, uh, and foreign to their way of life. Um, so, you know, in the television code, the National Association of Radio and Television Broadcasters, um, definitely set up this, uh, this analogy of the guest in the home. We want to be a welcome guest in the home. We don't want to, uh, to be this, um, you know, this aggravating outsider. Uh, we want, we want everyone to welcome us essentially. And so when viewers, you know, were confronted with content that, that they really felt was at odds with their own value system, they reached out, uh, to the government. And what's also interesting is that, you know, they didn't really know what the FCC did. Um, but they felt that the FCC was the one to call on. All right. And so in doing so, they were basically, you know, they were asking for government censorship when the first amendment says that can't happen. So they were so, they found themselves in such a desperate situation right, fighting against this technology that was at that point, you know, becoming such a juggernaut that they were like, look, you know, I'm against censorship in most cases, but something needs to be done about television. And so I was asking myself, now radio already had come, had arrived in that intimate place in the American home, but I guess there's such a difference in the introduction of the visual picture. I mean, so there was a big scandal in the late 30s about Mae West portraying Eve in a Garden of Eden skit. Uh, and that caused a big scandal, but you didn't see Mae West. And once people started seeing images, then they started wondering about necklines and things like that. Um, did the introduction of the visual image just ramp up their concerns to a level that wasn't there with radio? Um, absolutely. And, and which is kind of strange because with sound, your imagination can go anywhere. Yeah. Um, right. And so once you, once visuals are attached to it, um, you know, the, uh, um, the signification is kind of sealed, right? It's, it's there. That's, that's the one thing, uh, that everyone's experiencing at the same time. Um, and so absolutely it, it's very similar actually to when, uh, you know, silent film, uh, transitioned to, to sound cinema. Um, 
you know, before you would just maybe imagine gunshots, then you could hear them uh, and you could, you know, hear screams and whatnot. So the pairing of these two things uh, sort of drove people over the edge and created a lot of panic um, about how children would be impacted, for example, uh, you know, how young boys would react uh, to um, to the sight of a, a low neckline or a, or a high hemline. So absolutely, it, it, uh, it exacerbated tensions that were already existing about how media um, were, were impacting audiences. Some of the examples you share are uh, somewhat amusing to look back at, and you, and you caution, you say, look, the point of these is not to scoff at their prudishness or how misguided they may have been in registering these complaints. The point is to see uh, what were they worried about and what did they see as government's role. But if you'll permit me a little amusement at uh, viewers who said, my favorite program doesn't run, uh, doesn't run long enough, and they wrote to the president or the FCC to ask them to remedy that, or there are too many reruns on, um, the a, a cooking show is fraudulent because that woman didn't really cook that that dinner. Uh, one viewer said uh, that he wanted to ban all singing and dancing from television altogether. Uh, you had much more noble purposes in looking at these, but what were some that made you chuckle the most? Oh, the cooking show one is a favorite. It really is. This woman just absolutely convinced that um, a fraud was being perpetrated because the woman did not cook that in 30 minutes. Um, I, uh, I love the ones, uh, from, uh, you know, uh, from kids who really wanted their favorite show back on the air and expected the president to do something about it or the FCC to do something about it. Um, there, gosh, there are just so many, um, the, the most outlandish ones were, you know, tended to be the most, uh, kind of sexist ones. Um, unfortunately, you know, my research assistant and I encountered some racist ones as well. Um, you just, uh, they just ran the gamut. I mean, anything that you can imagine people were complaining about, people complained about, uh, you know, not enough sports on television because of blackouts. And then some people complained about too many sports on television. Uh, you know, no one was ever, um, content, but of course that's the way it is with, um, any kind of feedback like this, you get people who are either really happy or really upset, um, and nothing in the middle. Uh, but for the most part, these letters were pretty, these letter writers were pretty upset, um, about any number of things that we're seeing. I know one of my favorites, uh, is about, uh, wrestling. Um, viewers didn't like the sight of female wrestlers, uh, there were also a few letters about Gorgeous George, so another wrestler. Um, they didn't like the fact that he was so flamboyant. Uh, so, yeah, just um, it's a, a little window into some of the uh, eccentricities, to put it kindly, uh, of the television viewer at the time. But they wrote to the president, they wrote to the FCC, they wrote to the government, and part of the serious point of looking at these is to say viewers did expect or even want government to play an active role in censoring, in guidelines, in to have some level of control over this. And I thought you were suggesting that that even was the invitation to the government, hey, take a stand, take a step in here. Yeah, I mean, it, it was certainly a degree of pressure that the FCC couldn't ignore. Um, so the FCC did keep track of the number of uh, letters they received, and, and they did reply to these letters as well. And so if, 
you know, these letters were coming to the government. They were also going to stations and also going to networks. So stations uh, were pressuring networks because they were getting uh, getting complaints. Uh, the government uh, was pressuring the industry because they were getting complaints. Uh, Congress people were getting complaints. Um, you know, uh, viewers were, as I say in the book, they were exercising their citizenship by doing this. Like whether or not I agree um, with their own reasons for complaining, uh, they were kind of harnessing the only power that they had, which was their citizenship, um, and acting on it. And so, you know, these different stakeholders, these different groups couldn't ignore the fact that people were upset about content. Uh, and so that was just, you know, it was just one of the factors that was pushing at the industry, um, and trying to get them to adopt something, um, you know, that would maybe turn things around. It was just one of the factors, uh, but it was, but it was an important one because the, this of course was the audience, right? If you don't have an audience, um, there's no point. All right. So these are some of the pressures that uh, impel the industry to adopt the television code and it's adopted in 1951 or 1952. Uh, it's implemented in 1952, adopted in 1951. Let me just read a couple of points from the television code just to give listeners a feel for, for what it said and what it was covering. Uh, respect is maintained for the sanctity of marriage and the value of the home. Divorce is not treated casually nor justified as, as a solution for marital problems. Illicit sex relations are not treated as commendable. Drunkenness and narcotic addiction are never presented as desirable or prevalent. Um, televised drama shall not simulate news or special events in such a way as to mislead or alarm. That's left over from radio, I believe, after the War of the Worlds scare. Um, so this document was enacted and adopted, and yet there was some uneven buy-in and uneven enforcement of it. What authority did or didn't it hold? Uh, virtually no authority. And this is the this has been the problem with the radio codes. Uh, because if the industry, if, if the trade association rather, um, had punished anyone for running afoul uh, of these particular rules, um, then there might have been some serious antitrust implications. All right. The fact that um, NAB member stations were all agreeing to act on the principles kind of outlined in the television code uh, was already pretty, um, it was pretty risky. All right. Uh, no one wanted to be seen as colluding. All right. And so this is one of the reasons that the codes had been so toothless before the NAB really couldn't punish anyone. Uh, they said there was an enforcement mechanism. There was a television code committee that would meet and uh, and deliberate over any infractions. Uh, and so the punishment would be the removal of the seal of good practice, right? Um, that member stations were supposed to, uh, uh, to display, um, at regular inter intervals throughout the day. But some stations worried, okay, so if the seal, if our seal is revoked, is that then a signal to the FCC that we're, that we've done something wrong? What if our license is then revoked? All right. So there were real concerns about, you know, one, whether enforcement was legal, uh, whether, you know, there was actually collusion going on. Um, so 
everyone kind of knew uh, this thing really couldn't be enforced. And so, you know, stations ran with it or they didn't, you know, and, and over time, um, you know, many of them wouldn't even put the seal up on screen anymore. It was just, um, it, it really meant virtually nothing uh, to viewers. It was discovered. And so stations, you know, over time really didn't pay it any mind. You say that NBC TV internally had a committee review all scripts and advertisements before they aired. And so each network and each station uh, had some internal mechanisms. And the code itself set up a board, a committee in Washington, D.C. to, I guess, essentially watch as much TV as they could and uh, and issue violations wherever they saw them. And they claim that when they did issue violations, there were very productive and voluntary compliance and conversations that occurred. But we really don't know uh, how that was negotiated behind the scenes. No, we don't. And I think the key word there is voluntary, right? As long as everyone was doing this voluntarily, uh, then um, the government couldn't, you know, cast a suspicious eye over what was going on. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, every kind of stakeholder in this process, um, stations, networks, sponsors, um, the trade association, everyone had a policy, right? Everybody was kind of, everybody had an eye on uh, what was going on to television at, at various at various stages. And I think one of the central tensions that I try to get at in the book is this tension between the national and the local, right? So, you know, the network has, uh, has its own programming that's trying to reach an entire country, a mass audience. Um, and, you know, the values of, of viewers in New York were not necessarily aligning uh, with the values of viewers um, you know, somewhere in Iowa or somewhere in Texas. And so it was up to the station. It's always been up to the station to look after the needs and interests of the local community. The station is the license holder, not the network. The network's never been licensed by the government. Um, it's the station that can have its license revoked. All right. Um, so stations would get after the networks um, for giving them programs that ran you know, counter to their own community's needs uh, and their own community's values. So um, this tension between the local and the national is one of the things that makes, you know, television in general so interesting, um, but also the policing of television content uh, so complicated. We see this even now. Even now, viewers write to the FCC to complain. Um, even now, you know, local, a local station might refuse to air a network program, um, you know, a, a particular episode or a particular series because it, you know, it has, um, it is, it's simply incompatible with, um, with the community's values. You have a great chapter title on your chapter about the FCC that I want to share the Federal Communications Commission, impotent bureaucrats, underhanded censors, or exasperated intermediaries. They were called each one, um, and viewers thought they weren't doing enough. Uh, the industry thought it, they were doing too much. You say that's too simplistic, and um, but at the same time, you push for that exasperated intermediaries label. And as we said, in many cases, their hands were essentially tied, or at least they perceived that they were tied. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... I've always been fascinated with um, 
what a strange situation, uh, what a strange space the FCC occupies. And I think this story of the run-up to the television code really um, emphasizes how much of a peacekeeper they tried to be, um, how it would, how the agency would sometimes bend over backwards to help the industry while being, um, uh, you know, the object of so much scorn <laughs> uh, being uh, thrown at them by the industry. They're trying to make sure everything's functioning. They're trying to make sure everything's um, on the up and up. They're trying to remain within their own boundaries by not directing content. At the same time, they're using their speeches uh, to communicate uh, you know, indirectly to networks and stations and to the National Association of Broadcasters, what they really want to see on television. Uh, they're kind of making threats, uh, but again, not directly. Um, they're walking a very fine line, in other words, but they're adhering to this tradition uh, that had been already established by the FRC, which was, you know, to work with the industry. Um, you know, they, the FCC doesn't want to dismantle the commercial model at all. Uh, the FCC wants to make sure that, you know, the technology is right. They want to make sure um, that consumers are getting, uh, you know, the best of what the industry can offer. Um, but the fact is also that the only or rather the loudest voice in the FCC's ear is the industry's. Um you know, I, I say in the book, the um, the public doesn't have a lobbyist, right? So that's one of the reasons these letters are so important. That's that's the representative of, of the public. Uh, that's the only way they can get their message across. Um, no one knows what the FCC does. I mean, that's that's the big joke, right? No one knows what the FCC does. So the FCC is really happy when someone will pay attention to them. Uh, this was an anecdote given in in um. I forget which book on the FCC, I apologize. Uh, but the story is, you know, you get appointed to the FCC. Uh, no one will talk to you because no one knows what you do. Um, and so the only people who will talk to you are industry people. And so, you know, a very strong relationship, in other words, is forged between the regulator and the party that's regulated, which, you know, can wind up causing some big problems. Uh, in terms of, well, whose interests are you serving? Uh, to what extent does the, the public good and the public interest factor into these decisions that the government's making? This commission between 1948 and 1952 um, was a really interesting commission. The same people were on it uh, during that period of time. And it, you know, it, it fancied itself kind of a progressive commission. So it you know, it does occupy this very interesting space in this narrative of the television code. It's trying to do what's, you know, right for the public. But again, it doesn't want to destabilize the model that already exists. The television code, such as it was, and to whatever degree of enforcement it had, lasted until 1983, although the writing appeared to be on the wall in the late 1970s. You critique the view that the code at that time was simply out of date, it was simply antiquated, and you have a different view of why it collapsed. What's that? Yes, so um, what the code was doing was actually uh, limiting the amount of commercial time uh, you know, that could air during children's programs. and um, 
advertisers were not happy about that because they felt that that was inflating the cost of ads. Um, so, um, so basically, yeah, so there was this showdown, right, between advertisers uh, and the association. So the association uh, knew where, you know, this was going. Uh, they saw the writing on the wall. They didn't want to wind up um, in court. Uh, so they dropped uh, they, well, they basically killed the code actually. Um, and, uh, it, it was one of these really interesting examples of how the code was actually doing something good for children's programming in that, you know, limiting the amount of commercialization, uh, happening, uh, within these programs. And then that was the thing that led to the end of the code. Um, it's these little moments, actually, that sort of pepper this book. It's like, here's this thing that was, you know, really good or that could have been really positive, um, that could have uh, made television a little bit better. But here's why it had to go. So it's such a different media universe that we occupy now. The Internet is infinite in the amount of content uh, that can be distributed, it seems, and who can distribute it. And yet some of these same questions come up in recent months and years. We've seen uh, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook hauled before Congress and saying, if you don't do something about content policing, we're going to have to step in and regulate, however sincerely that threat was leveled. Uh, questions about YouTube, who polices all the video content and comments on YouTube, um, it's such a different ecosystem, and yet I imagine as a historian you hear echoes of some of these same uh, conversations playing out. Uh, is history any guide as to what a poor step forward or good step forward might be? Um, I was at um, a TV studies conference recently in Austin, and I attended a, a media law and policy panel that was interested in thinking through issues precisely like this um, in terms of continuity. All right. So um, early TV and the Internet can seem so very, very different, but it's useful to understand the patterns that link them. Uh, and this will give us a sense of where things will go. Um, so the Internet is vast. Right. Um, and before cable and satellite extended the reach of any one station, broadcasting was limited to the local level. It was national. Um, because it was eventually composed of stations that covered a great deal of the country, but the smallest unit of broadcasting is the local station, right? So not the same thing as the internet, obviously, but in both cases, reach is a concern. So like I said earlier, TV signals came into homes, whether people wanted them or not. Once you had a set, the only way to control the flow of images was basically by refusing to participate. Um, viewers had to rely on either the government or the network or the station to create a system that would shield certain sensibilities from material they found to be offensive. All right. So whether content is reaching into one town uh, or is reaching the world, there's a similar anxiety about the spread of messages uh, that people feel will do harm. So at a basic level, People feel now, as they did then, that harm would come to children through these screens, right? So this is the level at which government found its right to create legislation to establish protections for kids, right? So we have these pieces of legislation um, uh, dealing with children and the Internet. So the impulse to do the same thing in early television uh, pushed the FCC to pressure the industry to do something to clean up TV. So there's a reason that children are a special category in the television code, right? Kids are the one category that everyone can rally around. So, but what do we do then? What are we talking about uh, when we think about speech that threatens people's lives? 
um, or people's well-being. All right. So we can continue to kind of argue for a sense of continuity here. So, for example, we're seeing different websites enacting different policies. So obviously a website is an equivalent to a station. Uh, but if we're talking about a site's efforts to police content, uh, this is certainly a more micro approach to regulation than what would come from an ISP. Right. So in a similar fashion, you know, some local stations had their own policies, which made things complicated. So some stations in the South prohibited programs that showed the races mixing. All right. Um, and as I said before, networks had their standards, station had their standards, the NARTB had the television code, and even sponsors had their own editorial policies, not so much as different online. Um, so under pressure, Facebook kicks this guy off, right? Apple kicks this guy off, but Twitter drags its feet. So it's very disunified and it's very piecemeal. And it was an early TV as well. So like the internet, television is actually quite unwieldy because we're talking about many different stakeholders with many different interests. And it was probably more unwieldy back then uh, because there was less concentrated ownership of television stations. So we had networks that wanted to create a national community for advertisers, and these were potentially clashing with stations that needed to try to cater to local communities, like I said. So now and then, we might be talking about different kinds of speech, but we're seeing similar institutional responses, right? Private actors trying to self-regulate. Um, it's continuity. It's what we've seen before. Um, and if... Uh, you know, television offers any indication, uh, what we'll continue to see is more and more deregulation. Finally, Deborah, what are you working on now? What has caught your interest? Perhaps you're not in a rush to uh, plunge into another book, but um, any other big projects or at least anything that's caught your scholarly interest? So I keep saying I'm not going to write a third book, but um, there is a seed of something um, from this book that's been kind of uh, planted in my brain, uh, and that is the ACLU's involvement with television uh, and radio at this stage. Um, towards the end of the book, I mentioned a couple of screenwriters uh, who came out against the code, uh, and they were part of the ACLU's radio committee. Until I did research for this book, I would never heard of that at all. Um, so if I were to write a third book, I would venture in, into that terrain. All right. Well, Deborah Jaramillo, author of The Television Code. Congratulations. Best wishes for the book now that it is hot off the press. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Deborah Jaramillo is the author of The Television Code, Regulating the Screen to Safeguard the Industry, recently released from University of Texas Press. She is also the author of Ugly War, Pretty Package, How CNN and Fox News Made the Invasion of Iraq High Concept, published in 2009. Jaramillo is Associate Professor of Film and Television at Boston University, where she directs the graduate program in Film and Television Studies. I'm Nathan Birma. This is New Books and Communication Studies, a channel on the New Books Network.